Hi, everyone. This is Catherine Adams and Elizabeth Wallace, and you're listening to Binary System Podcast number 394. And tonight, we're recapping two episodes of Lore Olympus. We're going to start with episode 260, which is available for free right now on the Webtoons app, and then we're going to jump straight into 261, which is only available if you're fast-passing. And this was... Another couple episodes that gave us a lot of really good information, but I would also say that both of them are the kind where once you get to the end of them, you're like, okay, good. I'm okay with stopping right here for now. Yes, because you're not worrying about what's coming up quite so much, I don't think, even though we ended on quite an interesting image in the second episode. Oh, yeah, very. So it starts out, we've got an image of Hermes, and he's shouting at people to be careful with his delicates, and he's delivering some stuff to the mortal realm to, as it turns out, to Demeter, who is really not happy to see him and doesn't want anything that he's got a hold of. Yeah, he tells her that this is supplies from the underworld, and she says, take it back. And he just stares at her and says, Demeter. And then says something like, I don't want to get in the middle of your in-law tiffy-tiff. But uh, he has no plan on taking those things back. And he also has a letter to her from Persephone. And I love that drawing of Hermes as he's holding out the letter. I mean, everything about his pose and his expression and his eyes, it's all just wonderful. Yeah. And of course, Demeter doesn't have any problem with taking a letter from her daughter and she reads it and it's Persephone saying, Mama, I'm really, really sorry and we're working on it and I know that this can't make everything better, but I hope this helps. So obviously, all of the stuff that Hermes has been delivering is something to try and help the mortal realm during whatever the heck this plague is that's going on. Uh, And then suddenly Demeter gets a call from one of her nymphs and they have found Hebe. Now I want to pause for a second because I was able to verify, yes, it is pronounced Hebe. Because I looked it up and I saw, you know, Hebe and I was hoping that was it. And I asked Nathan and he said, yeah, I think that's possibly Hebe, like Phoebe. I'm like, oh yeah, because it is spelled the same. Yes, okay. Fine. That yeah. that will hopefully help me remember how to pronounce it in the future. So Demeter takes Hebe to help warm her up, and Hebe explains that she panicked when Apollo accused her, and she's like, the letter does make it look like it was my fault, and I know that rumors tend to stick. So she booked it out of there, but she didn't realize how bad it was going to be in the mortal realm. And then she notices Demeter's bracelet, and it's just a simple gold bracelet. And she says, oh, is that the one that Medes gave you? Uh, Hera has the same one. And Demeter is really shocked that Hera has talked to Hebe so much about her relationship with Medes and the war and what all of the, the sisters were expected to do because Medes had basically created them to help defeat Kronos. And Demeter says something like, I can't believe that she would share that kind of information with children. And Hebe says, but I'm not a child. And Demeter says, yes, but it feels wrong to burden your offspring with such things. And I thought that was weirdly slimy. Like it was a way of saying, you know, I don't want to burden you kind of equals, I don't really think you're mature enough to handle hearing about my problems. And Yeah, no. Yeah, and Hebe just talks to her about, her feelings on that. Yeah, and there's a lot about how she talks about how Hera cries a lot and she's surprised that she has any tears left, but she also knows that Hera is working on herself and working through her problems and Hebe thinks, I don't know, she seems sort of weirdly grateful that Hera would talk to her like that and all of this, of course, is hitting Demeter really hard because there is a very giant thing that she hasn't told Persephone and... 
she could probably couch it in terms of like, oh, I didn't want to burden her with it. But it's really, I think she recognized it's another form of control. Yeah, it is. And it was very interesting to hear the difference in how Hera had talked to Hebe when she was growing up. And again, I love the picture of, you know, Hebe is the cupbearer. And apparently she didn't like that when she was a little girl. You see this little girl who's probably like five years old looking really angry with the cup thrown on the ground. But then there's another picture of Hera talking with her. And Harris, you know, she's got her cape, but she's barefoot and she's crouched down. So she's exactly at Hebe's level. And she tells her that it is up to Hebe to shape what that role looks like and about how Medis didn't really give her a whole lot of choice about how she was supposed to grow up. And there was another wonderful picture of Medis, you know, looking humongous in her god mode. And this tiny picture of Hera floating in the air looking just angry. And that any deviation from what Medis wanted damaged their relationship. And I think that's a big reason why Demeter goes to the phone that's kept in the mortal realm and calls Persephone. Yeah, we switch over to where we see... Hades is talking to Hecate, and Hecate is telling Hades that a lot of shades are coming in, so the problem in the mortal realm is getting really, really bad, and you see Persephone look down, and she's got a call from her mother, and she takes the call while Hades and Hecate are still talking, and then Persephone goes to talk to Hades and says... I need you to break a rule for me. And we see this little boy who's lying on a slab, and he suddenly wakes up, and he's blue, and he's got glowing eyes. And this dog walks up, and it's obviously Hades in dog form telling him not to be afraid. And I love how, like, goofy and cute the dog looks when he's talking to this little child. And the child knows that he died and that he, like, got a cut on his foot that got infected and it killed him. And he wants to know what's going on, and Hades in dog form tells him that your mother was a goddess. And that's why he ended up where he was as sort of a technicality. And it's so interesting because we were talking for a while. We thought that the story that Demeter wasn't telling Persephone was the story from mythology where she loved a boy so much. She was dipping him in the fire to make him immortal, and his mortal mother freaked out, and Demeter you know, chastened her by saying, oh, you just cost your son his immortality and everything. That's not what this is about. I'm not familiar with this particular myth. Uh, me neither, actually. Uh, the little boy knows that his father was the king of Eleusis, Eleusis, something that was where um, Demeter was stationed when she had been banished. And the boy said that his mother told him that he existed because she liked the king so much. So uh-huh. apparently <laughs> they had they had a thing. Uh, I, mm-hmm. Sounds like it was an actual maybe romantic relationship, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Which is a nice way of telling a kid about how, well, your mother and your father loved each other very Very much. much. (laughs) But the little kid's name is... Demophon, I think. Demophon. Again, another name we probably could have looked up the pronunciation for, but I don't want to spoil any of this stuff for myths that I might not know yet, because I kind of like being surprised. Same, same, very much so. And yeah, so Hades has been talking to the kid this whole time and talking about how, yeah, you definitely died, but lucky for you, your brother-in-law is king of the underworld, so you get to go home. And that's where the episode ends. (laughs) And the next episode starts with Demeter and Persephone talking. 
And Persephone tells her, I'm so sorry you were grieving about this on your own. I'm so sorry I didn't invite you to the wedding. And Demeter says, no, that intervention was terrible. And I love that she's acknowledging that. It's not just that she's apologizing for it. She understands why Persephone didn't invite her to the wedding, because how could you after something like that? Oh, God, yeah. But Demeter also admits that because of this death of her son, she has all of this rage, and she didn't know what to do with it, and she felt like the underworld had taken two of her children away. And that's, of course, when Persephone is just like, well, I haven't been taken away, but, you know, it's I can understand where Demeter's coming from on that one. Uh, And then Persephone says, oh, he's here, and, you know, runs outside and tells Hades, oh, you found him. And you see Demeter just looking forward, and then her expression changes, and she comes running forward to hug the little boy. And oh my goodness! So you can see, I I think this is going to help a lot with Demeter's relationship, probably with everybody, because after she greets her son, she hugs Hades, and they are both surprised. In fact, one of them says, "This is weird," and they agree, "Yeah, this is weird." (laughs) Yeah, Hades says that. Really, he's found a loophole in this thing. He also tells Demeter not to tell anybody because then everybody's going to be like, oh, did you bring enough for the whole class? Which I loved how they said that. (laughs) But it's the idea that her son was mortal because she was mortal, but she's not really mortal. This was a punishment given to her by Zeus. She's really a goddess, so that makes her son a demigod. So therefore, that's how we have the loophole. Yes, so everything's fine. I mean, Demophoon is now floating in midair as a demigod, but uh, it's, mm-hmm. and he's blue, but that's because he was a shade. So Hades says that might change, but he doesn't know for sure because he's never done this before. But he tells mm-hmm. him his name is now Triptolemus, and that's to mm-hmm. try to hide the fact that this is a mortal that's been resurrected and that she probably needs to change his birth date. But I mean, it's just, she looks so much more at ease now than I think we've ever seen oh, yeah. her in the series before. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, she's been kind of a hard ass the whole time we've known her, but she got really awful after Persephone came back from the punishment. I mean, and that, a lot of that was because of this. It wasn't just that she lost her daughter, she lost her son too. Mind you, she was really, really horrible. You can only use grief as an excuse so much, but however, you can't know what somebody's going through in their own personal grief. So I think we have some stuff ironed out a little bit. Um, But I think this is the point when Hestia and Hera come walking up and as they come up because they're looking for Hebe and that's when Demeter tells them I found Hebe we've got her everything's fine and that's when Persephone and Hades go ahead and take off back to the underworld and that was another bit of lovely artwork just in the expression because uh, Persephone calls out we better get going but let's talk soon and Demeter says okay. And it's just her expression. I think she's a little bewildered at how much better she feels now and that she's actually going to, looks like she's going to have a good relationship with her daughter and her daughter's husband now. Yes. Yes. So they go and then Hestia and Hera ask who the kid is and she kind of like, so his name is whatever his name was. Triptolemus. Yeah, there you go. Uh, And his father is, you know, a king in the mortal realm that I think what is it that Harris says at that point? Oh, it's just this wonderful picture because it's so small and they're both like on opposite sides of the page. But Harris says, a mortal father, huh? And a girl. <laughs> <laughs> 
So we jump from there. Hera's seen for herself that Hebe is okay and sleeping. And then Hera and Demeter and Hestia are sitting in their room and they're all drinking wine and it's great. But I mean, Hera says, thank you so much for taking care of her. And Demeter says, yes, she's safe and she can stay however long she wants. You, however, can get out because you married my daughter when you knew I was against it. And the first picture is her snatching the wine bottle and the wine glass away from Hera. And then she still gives her glass of wine. So Hera says, ah, still mad, huh? And I said something like, I hate to tell you, but your daughter's a wild card and she would have done it anyway, even without me stepping in. So, yeah. yeah. And I think both of those positions are fair because it's, you know, can you imagine someone's aunt stepping in and making that big of a decision to help when the mother is so set against it? Yeah, there's probably going to be some bad feelings, but it sounds like Demeter's starting to handle it now. I think we just had to have a little bit of the old Demeter just so we knew who we were talking to for a second there. But yeah. Oh, right. And I think... Yeah, I think Demeter's been thinking a lot about what Hebe said about her relationship with her mother. And she asked Hestia and Hera about Medes. Did you ever think that she was maybe, and Hestia says, a hard ass? And that just makes Hera snort. And Demeter's appalled (laughs) that she would say something like that. But Hestia's like, I love the goddess very much, but she could be a problem. I mean, it's like a difficult difficult relationship. And I think Demeter's the only one that hasn't really faced that yet. She's still been thinking about, you know, I love my mother. My mother was perfect. I had my role. I was supposed to do everything that she said. But I mean, Hera reminds her of the swimming hole incident. Yes, yes. Where apparently Demeter really, really liked to swim, which is cool because Persephone also really likes to swim. So Mm -hmm. we know where she got that from. And of course, we know that Demeter had a kid with Poseidon. So that kind of plays into that Uh as well. But Medes really thought that she was spending too much time on it. It was just like one thing that she was concentrating on to the exclusion of all else. And she really thought that Demeter was sort of falling down on her responsibilities, which of course, Demeter took that kind of stuff really personally. And I, I think, was it Hestia who pointed out that that's why you made Persephone take all of those extracurricular activities and Demeter's like there's nothing wrong with extracurricular activities <laughs> just a lot of the pictures in these two episodes were jo- drawn very tiny so you could just see these tiny little angry expressions and I love it <laughs> But yes, the parallels between what Medes did to Demeter and how Demeter treated Persephone are very, very obvious and becoming more obvious by the second to Demeter. Yeah. And then Hera notices Demeter's bracelet. And she said, oh, that's the bracelet that Medes gave you. I haven't worn mine in years. And she reaches over to touch it. And then everything flashes gray. And then suddenly Hera gasps and she looks around. She's like, oh, I'm having a vision. I haven't done this in a while. And she's looking around and she sees a vision of Kronos. And he's, I think he's in the underworld and he's bent over something in his hand and you look down and he's got what looks like Hera in his fist. Yeah. Yeah. And, some of the commenters were talking about that because there were several people who thought maybe that's not really Hera, maybe it's Hebe. I was wondering that too. Out, yeah, people have been pointing out that the two of them look very similar now that Hebe has grown up a lot. One commenter made the remark that they're pretty sure that it's Hera because Hera has a beauty mark under her eye and apparently the goddess that you see in that picture, you can see a beauty mark under the eye and Hebe doesn't have that same mark. 
I haven't confirmed this for myself, but the commenters are usually really on it, and that was a very upvoted comment, so I'm going to guess they've gone ahead and vetted that one. So yeah, and that's where the episode ends. So Hera Mm -hmm. is possibly seeing a vision of herself being captured by Kronos, and I think that would make more Mm -hmm. sense it would be Hera because we are still looking at the idea that Hera could possibly be the missing fertility goddess from that mural that um, right. uh, Persephone looked at. So I don't know. Maybe. Maybe so. It's a good couple episodes. A lot it of is. information and a lot of growth by Demeter for sure. Yeah. And a lot of fun little bits. Just love those tiny drawings. Those are great. Oh, so fun. And just to see the three goddesses sitting around drinking wine was great. I love that. Yeah. Well, I mean... I, I like Hestia the more I see her, and that's amazing to me because I thought that was such a shit move on her part when she took away uh, Persephone's fur coat that Hades had yes. given her, which I has... Has she even given that back? Has that even been acknowledged ever since? Boy, it would be because the image of... Persephone wearing that fur coat as she's leaving the underground, or underworld, excuse me, is such an iconic image of her being all happy and surrounded by this fluffy coat that Hades gave her Mm -hmm. and everything. To have her get that back, it would just be lovely to see her, like, not as the, I don't know, young 20s or, I don't know, she was, was she in her teens at that point? I'm not sure. I think she was 19. I think that I remember an early episode of uh, Hera saying that. It might have, who knows, maybe it was a bit of a grown-up coat for someone of her age, but to see her wearing it now, oh my God, she'd rock that thing. She would. And I, I just... At the very least, I want them to acknowledge the existence of the coat. I mean, even if she doesn't get it back, because I remember when Demeter had captured Hades underneath that bell jar and was having that horrible intervention, and then Hestia lets Hades out because she sees that this is horrible. And my reaction was, oh my God, Hestia, all is forgiven. You can keep the coat. Yeah, yeah. And it's so nice because Hestia... I remember learning Greek mythology when we were in school, and Hestia at the time seemed like such a nothing goddess. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no only because there isn't the stories of high drama that you get with every single other god. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, I find out later, Hestia was in every single home. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's the goddess of the hearth, and she was so important. I almost think. That's the reason why there aren't a lot of stories about her. You don't tell stories about the one that's like, oh, yeah, we everybody knows about that one. So. Yeah, yeah. Also, and just the fact, yeah, she wasn't, she wasn't kind of, I don't know, subject to the same foibles as the other gods who really do screw up quite a lot. Yeah, she wasn't an adventurer is the thing. She was just, she was a homebody, and sometimes you need that. Yes, yes, indeed. Okay, so that was the end of Laura Olympus for the week. Now what we want to talk about is... Catherine had watched a movie, recommended it to me, and I was like, oh, I don't know. And then she recommended it to Hannah, and Hannah watched it, and then I watched it, and it is 2022's The Menu. So good, you guys. I was so happy to finally see that. I just watched it on a whim with Nathan, and then I watched it for a second time, because I was a little tipsy the first time, and I caught so much more stuff the second time around. So it is a wonderful movie for rewatching, and my goodness, this is like my favorite favorite role of Ray Fiennes that I've seen in a long, long time. So spoilers, everybody. We're going to be spoiling all the things. But just, I mean, to jump right to the ending, Ray Fiennes' chef character, he's planning on killing everybody, and he's got all of his underlings are like cult-like following him into death. But he knows Anna Taylor-Joy's character doesn't fit because she was hired by her douchebag uh, companion of the evening because he thought it was more important to be there than to... 
warn everybody, oh yeah, we're all going to die. And she orders a cheeseburger knowing that it is something that the chef actually used to enjoy making. And you can see in Ray Fine's face just that peaceful look as he's making a freaking cheeseburger. And he's getting more joy out of that than you think he's probably had in ages. And he gives it to her and she eats a bite and she says it's a really good cheeseburger. And then she says, but can I get it to go? And you see Ray finds his face and there's just a tiny little quirk of his lips and a smile. And you know, he's like, this fits the storyline he has going on that she can take it to go. (laughs) (laughs) I love, I was reading a lot of boy and this is one of those ones where the trivia is pretty spot on because we've talked before about how much we love the trivia section on any IMDb movie, but sometimes it starts to get a little tedious. It's like, oh, this actor was also in this movie with this actor and this actor, which you could kind of think that the two parallels, I'm like, ugh, snore. But this had so many tidbits and so many insights into the characters, and they were pointing out the fact that she's not just a prostitute. She's actually a very high-end call girl, and a lot of times call girls, I mean, yes, obviously there is some sex work going on, but a lot of times call girls are hired to be companions, even if it's just like talking or accompanying to stuff. And he had asked her, does she enjoy what she does? And she said, "Mm, sometimes not as much. What she did for him was find out what gave him joy and actually like gave him the opportunity to do that thing that honest to God made him happy. And he recognized that. And it's just, I hadn't even, I haven't even noticed that. I just thought she was intensely clever to figure out how to play into the story that he was trying to tell. But the fact that he also recognized that she was playing the role that she really wanted to do and the parallels between the two of them. Oh, it's so really smart. Holy cow. It is. And you can't think too much about whether or not anyone deserve their fate in this because it'll just make you sad. You have to accept it as just satire. But the whole scene, okay, so he takes everybody outside and tells the men that they have a chance to escape and then he's giving them a 45 second head start. And like most of the guys just bolt out of there. They don't, I mean, the actor, he hands his assistant his coat and he says something like, I'm I'm sorry, you know that I'm awful. And he runs for it. And then all the women, you see the sous chef, Catherine, who had created the course, she walks up to them and you see all four of the women that are left are kind of like, they sort of pull back and pull into each other because they're expecting the worst. And she invites them back inside because it's getting a little chilly and they have a course by themselves over wine I love that scene I just I feel like there's there's some bullshit and some pretentiousness but at the same time it's just four women having wine and dinner together and the rich man who had hired um, Anna Taylor Joy's character his wife is there and she asked her at one point she looks at her and says so you know my husband and just the look on Anna Taylor Joy's face she's like stops her second size and says, yeah, I do. <laughs> I just I love her expression. And they they ask the sous chef if they're really going to die. And she tells them, yeah, it doesn't, the menu doesn't work without something to tie everything together. And they try to yeah. bribe her into maybe not having them die. And she's like, well, everybody dying, it was my pitch. I'm super pleased with it, or I'm super proud. And like one of a, one of the women at the table just reached over to the wine. Anyone else want wine? You hear all four of them. Yeah, I'll have some. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just that was my but favorite scene, I think. But she does at the same time, the sous chef does actually start to cry at one point because, you know, seriously, everybody is going to die. Everyone. 
and you know that they're okay with this, but you can also tell that they're all pretty haunted by this idea as well. So just to see that one bit of vulnerability and at the same time, like all the women who have been trying to bribe her to get her to take that back. And then she starts to cry and they're all like, but you're really good at what you do. And yeah, you're, this is really, they actually are comforting her, which I'm like, God, that's a thing that women would do for sure. It absolutely is. And I also got the idea because she started to cry after the, um, uh, the the restaurant critic, you know, complimented her, like told her how wonderful it was. And she said, there's a time when that would have meant a lot to me. And then she started to cry. And I think part of that is also the tears for it's like, because it sounds like the restaurant was just hell to work for. I mean, like maybe four hours of sleep, working all day, Catherine, the sous mm-hmm. chef, talking about the fact that she had to turn down advances by the chef twice. And instead of firing her, he let her keep her job. He just didn't look at her or speak to her for eight Eight months, and it's just because oh, he could get away with that. This was a real skewering of all the parts of high restaurant culture that are just terrible. Yeah, I did wonder about that. Um, of course, everybody who knows me knows that after Anthony Bourdain died, I got a little. It's like I don't know. I've read a bunch of his books and watched the documentary and everything, and to the point where I do wonder what he would think about this, because he wrote a whole book about friggin' Typhoid Mary, looking at it from the point of the fact that she was a cook, and that's why she kept on doing what she did, because she was an immigrant, and she was poor, and she wasn't highly educated, but she was a cook, and she was a good cook, and it's all she knew to do, and it's what made her life complete, and when people told her not to do it anymore, she just couldn't stop. I do wonder, he, he did talk a lot of times about how I don't know how toxic the industry could be, both towards women and towards just, I don't know, how it just sucks people dry and you have no life and it becomes just all-encompassing thing. I I don't know what he would think about the movie. I think he would recognize what they're trying to do, I do think. I'd like to think that. Who the hell knows? Yeah, I think he would probably agree with the idea that someone who's at the top of their game ends up having more and more expensive customers and being able to charge more, but the more money people have, the more they feel like they have to demand more and demand different, which is why you get these like deconstructed bread courses and things like that. And just how stupid it all must get that you can't make something like, like what we were talking about, the Instagram restaurants, that you can't make good tasting food that people enjoy because it's all about taking nice pictures and showing off where you went rather than having a freaking meal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think he would have really liked some of the rage involved, because obviously Anthony Bourdain, I mean, certainly there is a book called, I think it's the definitive oral biography of Anthony Bourdain, mm-hmm. all written after his death and all written from interviews. The It was one of his longtime collaborators, interviewed over 90 people to tell this story. That guy was an angry, unhappy guy for a lot of his life. And so I think a lot of the rage, because there's a lot of people who would ask him, it's like, why did you just stop and do something different? And to not do that, it's just like, I don't know, that's what your life is. I think he would have definitely understood the rage, which is why it was so interesting. One of the people that he ends up killing is the guy who technically owns the restaurant. Uh-huh. And he has this whole thing where he's strung up with like angel wings on him. Because he was he's an angel woman. investor. I like that idea. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> and one of the things that he's like raging at him about is just like, he always said in his meals that there were no substitutions. That's not what he did. But this guy was so powerful and owned it that he would just ask him to substitute thing, even though there's no substitutions. He's so angry. <laughs> Which also explains why he took the time out 
to really humiliate the guy who had actually hired Anna Taylor's Joy's, you know, presence to be there because it wasn't supposed to be her. It was supposed to be his girlfriend who had actually dumped him, but the guy knew that the chef wouldn't let single people go. It had to be part of a couple. So he had a substitution. He had a substitution. Really the story. Oh, yeah. yes. I love how that played in. God, Tyler was her, uh, the person who had hired her. And what a douchebag, but so delusional. I mean, can you imagine oh, yeah. how crawling he must have been in his email correspondence with Chef for months in order? I mean, he must have been so subservient and just so worshipful to actually convince Chef that Chef could tell him everyone at this dinner is going to die and know that he wouldn't tell anyone else because he didn't want to risk not being able to go. But at the same time, I really... It made me think, because um, uh, Sarah's on Tomato Nation wrote a wonderful essay about Grizzly Man, the guy that yes. like went to live with the bears and ended up getting killed by them. And just this whole idea that you know people have this idea that if they love something so much, somehow that's going to be protection or that the person they love owes them something. I mean, I've seen reviewers batting around the term parasocial relationship. So he really, yeah. I think, had this idea that maybe he wasn't going to die because he was the one who really loved the food and really yeah, worshipped chefs. And that was pointed out in the trivia because even though the chef had said, don't take pictures of the meal because it, they want it to be ephemeral or whatever, he was taking pictures all the time. And the only reason why you take pictures is so you can use it in some way later on. So he was convinced that he wasn't going to die, for sure. Now, here's a question. He he makes that... Uh, lamb dish. And that's like the closest to a nightmare. Believe it or not, with all the violence going on, that one scene is the closest to one of my nightmares. The idea of you cooking, but you have no idea what to cook and you don't really know what you're doing and everybody's watching and you know they're all going to be disappointed. I've literally had that dream before. So he he fails utterly. And that was another thing I loved so much about this movie was when some of the courses came up and it had the little descriptions and the names. And this was Tyler's bullshit. (laughs) So it's like inedible butter leek shallot sauce, undercooked lamb, total lack of cohesion. So that was great. So he fails and chef takes a bite and tells him it's really bad. And then tells him that you're the reason why all the mystery has gone out of our profession. And then he leans forward and whispers something to him. What do you think he told him? I don't know. I mean, obviously, Chef, he had really, I don't know, he was brilliant. And he could read people. And he knew what to tell people to get them to come and what to just eviscerate them. And I think it's really great that we don't know what he told him because you just, in your mind, just hold some kind of vague ideas. What is the worst possible thing that he could have told him? I mean, obviously, I think Tyler had some big old daddy issues. So it probably... Yeah, I was guessing it was something along the lines of, you know, your dad never loved you, and that makes perfect sense. You know, like that. <laughs> oh, God. Because yes. he was already just stricken at the idea that he mm-hmm. failed to be a cook, but then he looked, like, startled and horrified after whatever it was that he told him. And part of me thinks that 
chef probably told him something like, you're not allowed to have any more of the food, so you might as well do yourself in now. Because that was the most important thing to Tyler the entire time. I mean, he was given a 45-second head start, and he didn't go until chef told him, yes, you too. And then you saw him when the women were having the course, and he's outside the building looking in, trying to see what it is that they're eating. So that was the most important thing to him. So the idea that he was never going to be good enough to be part of the team cooking with chef, but he'd also betrayed all the diners. So he wasn't a diner anymore. So he wasn't going to be able to have the final course and finish the full meal, which he had, you know, set up at this ideal in his mind. So yeah, I think I'd like to think that that was what he told him something like that. Yeah, I think that would be it. And it's either that or kind of a combination, sort of a you have screwed everything up and the only way that you can make it better because you know you've messed it up by inviting somebody else a substitution and whatever and the only way you can fix it is if you just go ahead and kill yourself right now and I think not that he wanted to do that but he's just like his life is completely over I wonder exactly what happened to the one chef in the very beginning when they really realized that things are bad who shoots himself I mean what was that guy's life that he just without any hesitation blows his brains out blows his brains out because he wanted so badly to be as good as chef was and had come to realize that that wasn't ever going to happen which meant all the sacrifices he'd made in his life amounted to nothing and I think being part of the course and playing his part was the last thing he had left was to be able to do that on command gracious gracious I mean it was exactly the type of horror movie I like we've talked before I a little bit of blood, a little bit of gore. I mean, somebody's finger gets chopped off, somebody's brains get blown out, somebody gets stabbed in the neck. There's definitely some blood and gore and violence and all that kind of stuff. But there is no gross-out stuff. And as I've said before, this movie came out the same year as Triangle of Sadness, which has a lot to do with rich people and barfing. Lots. That is what everybody... I have to wonder if the movie producers or the director is happy with that, is that Triangle Mm. of Sadness is known as the place where everyone barfs all over each other. Because I won't watch it. I I won't see it. No. God, no. So when I heard that this movie was coming out at the same time, it's like, it's a horror movie, it's rich people, and there's food, in my mind, I'm like, oh no, I'm not going to do this. So I waited till you guys watched it first and you're like, no, there's no barfing at all. So that made it just really fun, not having to worry about it, which is why I actually really do like sites like Does the Dog Die or Emetophobia Review or whatever. I mean, it's like, you sure, you can't spend your whole life walking around with bubble wrap around you or kid gloves trying to be protected from everything bad. But really, if it's going to ruin your day, it's kind of nice to have a heads up about it. So, I mean, there's even a scene where a guy gets his finger cut off, but you don't see it. You see, like, yes. his hand finger on the table and someone coming down. And, like, that lovely bit of realism where he, like, cuts down, but then does a second cut because you know he's got to get through the bone. <laughs> but you don't oh. actually linger on any of the blood or gore or anything so yeah that was but the ending the final course the dessert course was a deconstructed s'mores brilliant (laughs) wow because he talked about and i've heard this before i mean the great british baking show got a lot of flack at one point because they actually had their contestants make a s'more and all of us american watchers who are looking at her's like 
it's not a s'more. I mean, it's just like <laughs> handmade ingredients and it's all like perfect and everything. People are like, a s'more should be made from ingredients you can get at the gas station. You know, that's what it's about. <laughs> but if you're a chef, I mean, he, he just made some comment about it. it's everything wrong with cuisine, you know, stuff that's made with slave labor and it's made with processed chemicals and it's all horrible and everything, but it's redeemed with fire. fire. Like, oh, wow. <laughs> so nice. Everybody gets their little cape of marshmallows and a hat made out of chocolate and the... Uh, all of the uh, the different sous chefs and whatever are putting stuff down on the ground. I don't know if it was because it was like off-white and white and stuff like that and make this beautiful design along the ground and then you know, putting graham cracker crumbs everywhere. But I just, the music was so wonderful mm-hmm. in that scene and Chef was just this beautific smile on Ray Fiennes' face at the idea that this is going to be his masterpiece and he's obviously terrorized all these people into sitting there and taking it when he lights everybody Gracious. on fire but it just that that imagery is so incredibly powerful the whole way and I was I was very gratified to find out that yes I have heard this composer before it was the composer for the movie Hereditary which is also interesting Uh, because Hereditary was directed by Ari Aster who did Midsommar and I saw at least one person on Reddit describe the menu as it's like Midsommar but set in a restaurant. That's very true. Oh wow, it so is. There's a lot of parallels there. Oh boy. I was glad that Anna Taylor-Joy, spoilers, she does actually survive. There was a second when she's sitting on the boat having gotten away and she's watching the fire go up and she takes out her to-go cheeseburger and starts to take a bite of it and there's something that changes in the music for a second i was like oh it's drug he's poisoned or she's gonna die nope by the time the movie ends she's still alive and i'm like cool cool yeah and i did i felt very bad for the wife of the rich man because she had been like she had been noticing that anna taylor joy's character had kept looking at them and anna taylor joy obviously recognized him as a former client and the billionaire's wife was like, she looks so much like Claire, who I'm assuming is their daughter, definitely. Yeah. And Anna Taylor-Joy tells the chef when he wants to know what kind of service she provided that it was all a very, like, while the sexual stuff was going on, she had to look him in the eye and tell him that he was a good person and that she was his daughter and that they both loved each other. And you're like, you know... He wouldn't have had her say that if something had happened that he would know he was never going to hear that from his daughter. And because there was a sexual element, you have to wonder, did he actually drive her away with abuse? Or was it something that they they were estranged and it was something he had always wanted? But I think his wife got some kind of sense of that when she asked Anna Taylor-Joy, so, you know my husband. And there seemed to be like this understanding between them. Like when she's getting up with her to-go cheeseburger and she starts walking out, but then she turns around and she looks at everybody and you see the wife is just like, looks up at her and she makes this like, go, go motion with her hand. Yeah. Like, oh my yeah, God, that, that got me in the heart. Because it's like- Yeah, that was really well done. You, you don't, I mean, maybe the millionaire- could have deserved getting lit on fire in a restaurant. Maybe he deserved that. All the other people had their own ways of being awful. Nobody else actually deserved that. Come on. No, no, no. Uh, uh, did they? 
I forget because I like Hannah had pointed out that she liked the fact that the assistant to the movie star, mm-hmm. obviously we knew you know why the chef hated the movie star. I mean, he was kind of a douchebag, but even him, I mean, the chef hated him because the chef went to see one of his lesser known movies when he had one of his very few days off and he really hated it. He just blamed <laughs> the movie star for something like, well, that's a little harsh. But then the assistant was like, oh, but mean. He said, where did you go to school? Brown. Student loans? No. No, you you need to die. Whoa, wow. Yikes. (laughs) That was a very yikes moment. I did love her her moment when all the women were following the sous chef back into the building so they could sit and have that course. I didn't notice it the first time, but the the assistant, she just looked down at one point and she tosses his jacket down on the ground and then keeps walking inside. This wonderful dismissive motion. Oh, yeah. So did they ever say why the millionaires or billionaire or whatever she was, why she might have deserved to die? Did they say? Um, I think maybe just because she was the millionaire's wife. He, the chef was really mad at the fact that they were regulars and that they had been there like 11 mm-hmm. times. And yet yeah. they couldn't name one thing that they'd had at a previous dinner. It was all meaningless to them. It was all a status sort of thing. They weren't, obviously they weren't enjoying Enjoying it, and they didn't really respect it. I mean, she like tries to prompt her husband to say, "Cod, you had cod," and he says, "Cod," and Chef says, "It wasn't cod; it was halibut." And she doesn't understand why it matters. And he said, "It matters to the halibut, and it also matters to the people who work to put it on your plate." So yeah, I think that was none of it. It was all completely blown out of proportion. But he had a reason for hating everybody in there. Oh, yeah. yeah. Interesting side note. Speaking of the food, according to the trivia, none of the food that was being prepared or I think even eaten during that movie, none of it was actual real food up until you got to the cheeseburger. It was all just fake prop stuff, which just fits into the story so well. Oh, my goodness. Which also makes sense because, I mean, like nobody was actually enjoying their food even before things started to go wrong because it was all a status symbol. Nobody really cared one way or the other. And I'm like... That works too. I like and and I, I like one of the trivia bits that said that everybody was so hungry watching Anna Taylor Joy actually eat a nice cheeseburger that the actor who plays the actor character bought everybody cheeseburgers afterwards. Like, that's great. Because <laughs> that, nice. that made me hungry for a cheeseburger. That was a good looking mm-hmm. burger. Oh, man, it looked great. Oh, boy, howdy. Just, I like movies that can scare me. I like movies that are unsettling. We've talked about that with like Doctor Who. It's great to watch an unsettling episode. I'm even fine with movies that upset me. Like Midsommar is upsetting. We've talked about, oh, oh Wicked and the Divine, the scene with uh, the 90 years in the dark. I mean, oh, that's my goodness. That really is that's really terrifying, upsetting. really effectively terrifying. But, you know, I, I, I like that. Even though you just think about that and it's being so terribly upsetting, you do think back about to the first time when you realized what was going on and that little shock to your system. You're like, oh, I want that again. Yes, you know, that's yes. fun. I think somebody posted on Reddit, um, they want to know if they were the asshole for not warning their niece that a character was going to die at the end of this series. And it was a book, uh-huh. a series of books that they were reading, like a really long series. And the niece was really kind of, it was like crying afterwards. And I think her father said, well, you really should have warned her that something like that was going to happen. And everyone was responding, no, you're not the asshole. And it was all various responses of, it's okay to get emotionally invested in something. You know, being upset means that you actually care about the story and the characters. And you don't want to take that away from people. No, no. I Yeah, I, I don't. Well, like we said, you know, trigger warnings and everything. I guess 
your mileage may vary on stuff like that. But I can't, the number of people that I've heard of, it's a surprising amount of people who will flip to the end of a book to read it to see if it's worth finishing. I'm like, oh God, I just wouldn't read it. Oh God, there have been so many times when I've finished the last page of the book with my hand covering over the last few lines so my eyes don't accidentally scroll down to read the last line too soon. Oh God, yes. I've done that with comic books too. It's even worse with comic books because you're like, I've got like a whole page I'm covering over so I don't see the ending. I'm like, dear Lord. But I don't know, some people, that's if that's what you like. It is interesting though that if I'm reading a story and I'm just bored with it and I'm like, ugh, I kind of want to find out what's going on but I just don't care enough. I have actually skipped to the end of stories at that point but it's not to see if the story is worth reading. It's because I've given up. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I'm going to find well. out what happens but I don't care that much. So yeah, if I really care, no, there's no way I would skip to the end. And, you know, yeah, sometimes you get burned. Sometimes you read stories like, why the last man? And you get to the end and you're like, why did I even read this? Dear Lord. But that's just how it goes sometimes. Yeah. Well, I think you and I know each other very well because you were the one that told me how angry you were about why the last man, which meant I mm. basically skimmed through the last couple of graphic novels and then read the ending. I'm like, yeah, I'm glad I didn't invest any more time in that one. That made me angry. Yeah, yeah that's hard. I mean, I, I understand like, being sad that something is done is one thing. I wouldn't give somebody a heads up on that one. But being angry about it and feeling like it's just not a good story, sometimes I do feel like I have a responsibility to be like, ah, don't get your hopes up too high on this one. I don't know. <laughs> but I guess that's going to wrap us up for the week, so make sure to check out pixeladygeek.com for all the book reviews, the movie reviews, the comic book reviews, the, the photo, photo galleries. galleries. I went to Oddities and Curiosities Expo this past weekend. That's a show that goes all over the country. There's one coming to Charlotte, North Carolina. So I don't know if uh, I don't know if our friend Beth likes such things, but if you guys scheduled a trip out there, that would be really nice. I, we haven't visited them for a while. Hmm, might, might have to set something up. Be warned, there is a lot of taxidermy. I mean, a lot of taxidermy and things made with skulls and bones and butterflies. And apparently, it's all ethically sourced. I.e., people aren't allowed to kill an animal in order to make the art, so they have to source it from food processing plants and veterinarians and roadkill and stuff. But uh, yeah, if that's not your deal, I would go someplace else. But I just think so much of it is just really beautiful. And we have a whole photo gallery up on the site right now if uh, if that's your jam. Mm, can't wait. I, I definitely need to check that out. I do like the Victorian memento mori kind of things. I mean, some oh, of it yeah, is just yeah. really elegant. Yeah. And if you go to it, I'll tell you right now, there were so many people, just attendees, wearing their best goth, man. Just like, just really elaborate goth stuff, too. So it's like a cosplay opportunity right there. Anyway, all that and more, pixeladygeek.com. So, no Night Vale next week. Right. Maybe we can actually watch a Doctor Who episode, because speaking of <sighs> being afraid of being sad at the end of the story, I'm still afraid I'm going to be sad at David Tennant's last episode. Haven't worked my way up to that one yet. Yeah, I'm also hoping it's like, so far the episodes have, the first episode was good, and the second episode was amazing, and now I'm just hoping that the third episode continues that trend, or at least still stays good. You know, That would know. be great. Yes, please. Anyway, one way or the other, we will talk to everybody in one week. Talk to y'all later.
So we are at 46 minutes. So yikes. Okay. Yeah, we'll stop right now.